The Nile is Egypt, and Egypt, for many, is the Nile. For over 8,000 years, the historic river has nurtured civilizations. But now, Cairo says that that is under threat. Hundreds of kilometers upstream, Ethiopia has built a mega dam. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And this week, we're turning to the Nile River to ask, how do you solve a problem like the Great Nile Dam Dispute? It stands over 155 metres tall and nearly 1,800 metres long. In a few years, it will hold back 74 trillion litres of water, enough to create a lake that at its peak is 245 kilometres long and 140 metres deep. And that's the rub. Egypt still takes nearly 90% of its water from the Nile River, and Cairo says that even the act of filling the reservoir behind this mega dam will leave its 100 million people thirsty its farms parched and its taps running dry. And Egypt isn't alone. Sudan too is worried. The three countries are engaged in last-ditch talks to try and hash out a framework. How fast will Ethiopia fill the dam? What will happen if there's a drought? And who has what say over how the water is shared? But there's a ticking clock. In June, Ethiopia said it plans to go ahead and fill the reservoir when it completes the $4.8 billion Grand Renaissance Dam, Deal or no deal. Egypt won't rule out military action if that happens. From the lush, muddy hills of Ethiopia's highlands, on the banks of Lake Tana, one of the Nile's two main arteries starts. The river winds out of Ethiopia and has cut deep, impenetrable gorges, some up to 1,500 metres deep. That's roughly the same as the Grand Canyon in the United States. It washes down fertile black silt from the green highlands that turns the water dark giving the river its name, the Blue Nile. As it travels from its source, 1,460 kilometres to the Mediterranean Sea, it passes through Sudan. In Khartoum, the dark waters of the Blue Nile meet and merge with the river's other main artery, the White Nile. From Kenya's Lake Victoria down through South Sudan to this junction, the second tributary carries a light white clay, which gives it its name. Then from here... The Grand River flows north to the Egyptian border, across the centre of the country, and out to sea in the bustling fishing port of Alexandria. For ancient Egyptians, the colour black signified life, and white symbolised death. One was the dark, silty mud that flooded the banks of the Nile every year, bringing the farmers bumper crops, and the other was the parched white sand of the desert. The Nile helped build the Great Pyramids of Giza, and today it still quenches the thirst of Egypt's people. In the years... 2020, Egypt depends almost exclusively on the river's water to survive. A significant reduction in the river's water, as Egypt fears now that the Ethiopians are building the Renaissance Dam, would cost the Egyptians hundreds of thousands of jobs and would undermine its food security, not to mention the ecological impact of less water coming into Egypt. It's an existential issue, and that's another statement that couldn't possibly be labeled as an exaggeration. So Egypt's alarm over the dam is justified. That's Hamza Hendewi, the National's Cairo correspondent, who regularly covers the Nile Dam talks and has reported extensively from Khartoum. So what is the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD for short? 
Here's William Davison, a senior analyst based in Ethiopia for Crisis Group, an international non-profit that works to prevent and resolve conflicts. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is a project that began in well, 2010 and then sort of launched officially in 2011. Um, it's a hydropower project um, on the Blue Nile River in Ethiopia. It's about 20 kilometers from the Sudanese border. It's a relatively very large dam. Uh, it will create a very large reservoir. It also produce a huge amount of, of power. It will be one of Africa's largest dams upon completion. Um, it was self-financed by Ethiopians and the Ethiopian government. And it's been going on since 2011. And it's scheduled to produce its first power over the next year or so. And then there will still be a few years more of construction until it's finally completed. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is reaching the stage of construction um, where Ethiopia plans to start filling the dam. This construction, this situation, uh, we've reached this point without any agreement um, with the downstream countries, Sudan and Egypt, um, about the filling and operating rules for the dam. Uh, the Sudanese and Egyptian position is that Ethiopia must not fill the dam without that agreement in place, whilst Ethiopia's position is that it has every right to continue construction and begin filling, regardless of whether there is an agreement on the filling and operating rules with the downstream countries. So the situation is at a critical juncture. So far, the talks have failed to find any solution, and Ethiopia plans to press ahead. This act of the first filling has been um, turned into a very pivotal moment by various positions. And you know, Egypt says that there will be no more negotiations after first filling. You know, Sudan opposes first filling without an agreement. It's important to remember that while, yes, there are two main tributaries to the Nile and the Ethiopian dam will only impact one of those, about 80% of the water and the resource-rich silt come down the Blue Nile. Hamza tells us what's at stake. Egypt is not saying don't build the dam. Egypt is saying go ahead, build the dam, generate the, the power that you need in Ethiopia and export the power that you don't need to neighbouring countries in East Africa. But let us agree on how the dam is operated. Let's agree on how we manage the waters. Clearly, the Sudanese would be less impacted by the dam uh, than the Egyptians. But the Sudanese also have very serious concerns about the dam. That includes the flow of water into their own series of, of dams on the Blue Nile, on which Sudan heavily depends for its power. Sudan is also worried that the structure of the dam might be as solid as the Ethiopians make it to be. If there is a breach in that dam, large areas of Sudan would be flooded. So would Egypt eventually when the water reaches and crosses the Egyptian-Sudanese border. So while Sudan appears to be caught in the middle in this fight, or in this squabble between Egypt and Ethiopia. It just appears to be so, but Sudan has some very legitimate and serious concerns about Ethiopia running the dam without heed or care for the concerns of the Egyptians and the Sudanese. It is worth noting here that the Sudanese position versus the dam has significantly shifted in favor of the Egyptian position over the last two, maybe three months before that, the Sudanese position was perceived to be pro-Ethiopia. And many people were saying that Sudan took that position because it stands to gain cheap power from the dam. 
And what happens if there's a drought? Here's William again. As we know, Egypt is, is heavily reliant on the Nile. Um, so initially, there is the filling stage. So, for example, if Ethiopia had decided to fill the Renaissance Dam's reservoir in one year, well, that would create a huge problem downstream because all of that water would be diverted into the reservoir and would not flow downstream. That's not the plan at all. Um, it will be filled over probably sort of five to seven years, and that means that there will be a certain you know, adequate uh, portion of water flowing downstream during the filling period. Um, and that's been done to, to reassure Sudan and Egypt. But Egypt's concerns then um, focus around drought. Um, what happens to Ethiopia's filling plans um, over the next you know, five to seven years? Should there be a drought or a prolonged drought during that period? What is Ethiopia willing to change to ensure that we still have adequate flows going downstream during that period? The risk for Sudan, and that they also um, see benefits from, from the project, but the risk for uh, Sudan relating to what they, what they classify as, as dam safety. So if we think about the Renaissance Dam and its, and its huge reservoir, there will be very significant releases of water um, from, from that dam. Now, Sudan's Rosero's Dam, for example, is I think about 100 kilometers downstream. So if the releases from the GERD were not well coordinated with water management at the Rosero's Dam, so that could lead to inundation or, or other problems there. So Sudan, most um, prominently, wants to ensure that there is adequate coordination um, between the Renaissance Dam um, and, and, its, and its dams. Also, you know, if there was any kind of structural uh, breach, that would also be a, a potential disaster for Sudan. So they want assurances on, on that element. Although, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason to be concerned about structural issues. But there are upsides too. For Sudan, the dam can massively help prevent devastating floods that sweep the country during rainy season. And it could also lead to a deal with Ethiopia to import cheap electricity, another huge boost to the crisis-ravaged country. The Ethiopian position is that construction has been agreed by the downstream parties, as in the, the stages, the schedule of construction, and the filling is part of construction. Um, but ultimately, you know, despite that position, this has been built up into a pivotal moment, and therefore there's lots of pressure to get a deal done before then. But I think we should keep in mind that this is a, a, some, something of a, of a construct. Um, and the reality is, in terms of the hydrology, that there is no chance of serious water shortages occurring um, as a result of the act of, of, of first, especially in the first year, um, when there is only a relatively small amount of water that Ethiopia will impound. So what's been done to resolve the dispute? Well, over the last several years, there have been rounds of talks looking to finalise an agreement on how the dam will be operated. But there is no deal in place yet. While there's a lot of technical details that the engineers, hydrographers, politicians and lawyers need to hash out, the dispute largely boils down to this. For Egypt, it wants everything agreed up front, so there's a system in place to account for any eventuality. They want to know how Ethiopia will deal with a severe drought. What happens if there's too much rainfall and they purge the water from the dam? And what mechanism is there to resolve disputes? Ethiopia, by contrast, wants an element of flexibility. Why agree exact water flow rates and rainfall when we don't know what the impact of climate change might be? Or what if Addis Ababa undertakes additional irrigation projects further upstream that impact the water flow? 
Crucially, Ethiopia says that any comprehensive water-sharing agreement setting quotas for every nation along the Nile would need to be done in talks with all 11 countries in the river's drainage basin. Sudan wants to know that its share will be protected and there's a system in place to ensure the dam won't ever overtop, break or otherwise cause a catastrophic flood that could cause devastation. Here's William on the talks. I think there are some very, very hard problems and, in, and entrenched differences of you know, narratives and perspectives and interpretations which we're confronting here. So there's a whole you know, historic debate about the treaties. Um, there's essentially a water sharing, water allocation debate, which has not been finalised. You know, what is the equitable distribution of water across the Nile Basin? Well, you know, we don't know anything about that yet because we haven't really had um, substantive negotiations on it. Instead, we have the Renaissance Dam, which has become the focal point of all of those outstanding and lingering disputes. Um, and then the, the, the atmosphere and the dynamics um, stemming from those larger disputes is making the technical issues surrounding the Renaissance Dam that much harder to resolve. But really what we're looking for is for the Ethiopian, Egyptian and Sudanese lawyers and engineers to sit down, work out you know, some sort of reasonable drought mitigation proposals covering all scenarios that are acceptable to all parties, probably using the water stored in each country. And then in terms of these, these legal issues, um, there is a need for compromises on the issues of, of dispute resolution and, and how binding this, this agreement is. Um, I mean, they are connected to the, to the wider disputes. And I think Ethiopia has, has been making this point that um, it's not willing to get into any terms and conditions in this treaty, which it thinks should rightly be part of a multilateral treaty governing the entire basin. So perhaps as a stepping stone, you know, compromises can be reached over this GERD agreement on its filling and operating rules. And then that can lead into a process which tackles some of these larger questions. While the Nile Dam dispute is at the heart about water and the worry about not having enough of it, the debate is also about something much bigger. The issue is political more than it is technical in that there are technical solutions available and have been available for quite some time. Um, but it's about political will and the ability for the countries to sell concessions to their general publics effectively. That's Hafsa Halawa, a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. I think something that each of the countries doesn't take into account of the other is that the, the dam as a project is a major national cry, both for and against it. So it's, it's a lot of it is about domestic nationalism and this sort of rallying cry around sovereignty, whether you're in Ethiopia and it's about securing water rights and your right to generate power and this, the fact that they've had civilian buy-in into the dam in, in monetary terms as well as political terms. And for Egypt, it's a nationalist existential battle for survival, effectively. And the country's struggle to sort of see the nationalist element for, for each side, because when, when Egypt talks about its water access, Ethiopia cries colonial era water agreements, and when Ethiopia cries um, nationalism over its right to access water and its right to develop upstream and its right to have this hydroelectric dam, Egypt kind of turns around and says shifting the allocations unilaterally isn't 
isn't what riparian water agreements should be based on. Indeed, as Hafsa points out, the people of Ethiopia have been encouraged to buy Renaissance Dam bonds to help pay for it. And it's become, over the last 10 years, a national symbol in the ethnically, tribally and religiously diverse country. For Egypt, the issue is of utmost national security. The country has undergone rapid change in the last decade. The revolution in 2011 toppled Hosni Mubarak after 30 years as president, and it ushered in nearly five years of uncertainty. The country today is a lot more stable, but it's still facing a dire economic situation, a rapidly expanding population and issues of development, and, as Hafsa explains, insurgencies and regional conflicts. Egypt is incredibly insecure on all its borders. There's an ongoing low-level insurgency in Sinai that's been raging for, for certainly nine years, but more so the last seven or eight years. The conflict in Libya is now threatening to bring Egypt into direct intervention in the country. And you've had the Sudan uprising and the development of the GERD in the south. And it's really sort of aligned security policies and and shifted the importance of border security right into the the sort of main discussion on national security domestically. The result, while not directly threatening to launch an attack on Ethiopia if it endangers the water supply, Cairo has made it clear that a military response is not out of the question. Here's Hafsa on whether that could be a serious option. Egyptians are talking about water more than they're talking about COVID. That's really telling of how important the water issue is beyond the national idea of ownership and Egypt as the gift of the Nile and all of this historical rhetoric. And the threat of military action, I think, politically has to stay on the table. I don't think the Egyptians can move away from that message that's sent that all options are on the table. But I would argue that everything we've seen over the last 10 years is actually a massive signal that Egypt genuinely doesn't want to take any military action. The most headline-grabbing stories might well be about the sabre-rattling. Indeed, a war would have a dire outcome for the entire region. And while nobody appears to want a war, the risk of filling the reservoir before an agreement is in place could irreparably damage relations this would make any future resolution so much harder to achieve. Hafsa says that as countries become more entrenched in their position, it's harder to make concessions. So you have this inability to communicate um, each other's nationalist positions in a way that respects each other. It's, It's this continuous battle of antagonism on both sides, and it's been going on effectively since, I would say, 2010, when the GERD Firstly, when the NBI, the National, the Nile Basin Initiative was formed and Egypt and Sudan refused to sign up to it and then developing the GERD project, which was originally four smaller dams that became this massive hydroelectric dam project and then moving down. So when Ethiopia talks about GERD um, and Egypt sort of cries, you're reducing our water access and we depend on this, Ethiopia turns around and says, you know, more recently, will you build us one without consulting us? And we're an upstream country that has access and rights to, to the Nile as well. So it's a constant tit for tat battle, at least publicly and, and, and politically. Although diplomatically, I think it's fair to say there is much more agreement than disagreement. To try and break the deadlock, third parties have been brought in. In 2019, Egypt asked the US to mediate, but Ethiopia didn't attend the sit-down meeting in February 2020. 
it feared that Washington would favour Cairo and strong-arm them into a deal that they didn't like. And then there were efforts that included the EU, the US and South Africa. And now the African Union is making a final push to get a deal. Ethiopia obviously has concerns or opposition to the internationalisation of the process or diplomatic escalation, and they objected to the role that the US took on earlier this year. And instead, Ethiopia has focused on this as a matter to be resolved between the parties, and then failing that as a matter to be resolved by the region or by the continent. That was William again. So it seems that the parties are somewhat between a rock and a hard place. Here's Hafsa. Ethiopia, for the first time in 10 years, not only is committed to this timeline of filling the reservoir this summer or beginning to fill the reservoir this summer, but has actually stuck to it because we've seen this many times. Ethiopia has come out and said it will fill the reservoir. And then because of internal issues, construction's not completed, political upheaval, etc., it walks that back. This does seem to be the genuine sort of, you know, red line commitment to, to fill the reservoir this year. Um, possibly also in an attempt to avert from other domestic crises. And yet we see Egypt exhausting every single diplomatic channel, including now the UN Security Council and arguing for diplomatic intervention from the Security Council. Um, You know, there does seem to be a real concerted effort to not only exhaust all options, but to utilise any option that is not military. So what's the solution? Well, there's several parts to this. One is clearly the technical agreements to be hashed out by the engineers and the lawyers. But William says there's also the much bigger question about rights and sovereignty and diplomacy. One or all sides need to make concessions so we can sort of find the balance between having a sort of open, trust-based, more trust-based arrangement um, with a, with a certain amount of uh, license for the dam owner, Ethiopia, to make alterations and this sort of, you know, this alternative scenario where everything is is mapped out in the finest detail in advance and then there are binding third-party arbitration processes um, should there be any future disputes. The construction of the Grand Renaissance Dam took nearly a decade and yet as July came, the month in which Ethiopia said it would start filling the reservoir, there was still no agreement. The dam has huge potential to help propel development in Ethiopia, Sudan and across much of Africa by supplying cheap electricity and dependable water. But the risks are also huge. Not only does this have the potential to spark the world's first water war, it has the potential to alter the dynamics and relations in the entire African continent. Filling the reservoir isn't the end of the debate, and this will likely rumble on for months if not years to come. But it's the politicians in Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt who will ultimately decide the direction this takes. Thanks this week to Hamza Hendawi in Cairo, William Davison in Addis Ababa and Hafsa Halawa in London. This episode of Beyond the Headlines was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear all the latest Beyond the Headlines as soon as they air, just hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And while you're there, why not leave us a review? It makes a big difference. PodBridge, a podcast presented by the UAE Embassy in Washington, D.C., focuses on issues and ideas of shared interest in the United States, the Middle East, and throughout the world. 
hosted by UAE Ambassador to the U.S., Youssef Alotaiba. Each episode features a conversation with thought leaders on topics such as technology, religious tolerance, science, women's empowerment, and more. New episodes of PodBridge are published twice per month on all major podcast platforms. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.